Amen. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word or open God's Word to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be reading from verses 14 through 21. And if you're using a, a Bible from the back of the room, that's on page 977. So as we prepare to hear from God this morning through his word, through his preached word, let us hear what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus. There in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. We read, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. I want to mention one prayer request before, or not a prayer request, an announcement before I begin, just so that it's not neglected. I don't want to trust my memory for after the sermon. Today is a dollar for missions day, and the, the aggregate of what we gather, hoping that each person will give a dollar, and maybe parents will give a dollar for their children, will go entirely to the Baldwins who really need some help and some encouragement these days because of what they've recently gone through. So please don't forget Dollar for Missions today for our dear beloved missions family, the Baldwins. Now today we conclude part one of our exposition of the little letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And then we're going to take a brief break just a seven-week break while so many of our congregation travel from us for well-deserved vacations. Even today, as you look around, you can easily see that that needful and wonderful season of vacation has already begun. Next week, we will begin a series that we trust will be encouraging and helpful to you entitled Extraordinary Daily Life for the Glory of God. And we're going to be looking at very practical matters and considering how we can do them for the glory of God. Matters such as food, family, work, marriage, leisure, money, and sleep. That will begin next Lord's Day morning. And then on July, I think it's something like the 26th, we will come back to Ephesians and we will deal with the second half of it. As you know, the 
Apostle Paul's letters very naturally break into two parts, almost without exception. The first part, and often close to half, is doctrinal. It's teaching. The second part is practical. It's applicatory. It deals with the so what. So when we come back in July, we're going to wrestle with the application of these glorious truths that the Apostle Paul has brought to our attention. So let's jump in to these last eight verses of chapter 3, which John just read for us. We have here an amazing prayer. It's actually the second prayer of the Apostle in this letter so far. And that prayer is followed by what we just heard. The very last words read by John were a doxology, that is a giving of praise to God. The Greek word doxa means glory. It's giving glory to God. The prayer is briefly introduced in verses 14 and 15. Some call it a preamble. It's a statement made at the beginning of something. Then comes the prayer itself, found in verses 16 through 19. It's really just one sentence in the original language, and almost all English translations reflect the oneness of the sentence. There are two, at least two exceptions, the NIV and the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Put some punctuation in there to, uh, to help us understand, and even those who see it as one sentence insert commas and semicolons and dashes, because frankly, it, it is a little bit complex. And my goal this morning, by the grace of God and help of God, will be to take the complex and to make it simple. Uh, pastors have an uncanny ability to take the simple and make it complex. And I'm going to try to do the opposite. By the way, it was great to hear from Pastor Keith and to see uh, Cuba, and, and I hope that draws our hearts out for Cuba. Uh, it was very precious. And um, I'm glad that he's so consistent because, once again, not only did he show us some food, but he tantalized us by using the words, can you imagine this, juicy and succulent. That's just not fair at this time of the morning, but he's never fair when it comes to talking about food like that. So that was a wonderful report. So that's kind of how it lays out. And then, of course, after the prayer itself, we have the doxology, which I've just made mention of. So preamble, prayer, doxology. Let's look very briefly at the introduction, that's kind of what I would prefer to call it. Preamble sounds a little archaic. Notice how he starts in verse 14 with these words, for this reason. Now, if you remember, he had just used those words about uh, 13 verses earlier in verse 1 of this chapter. Notice how that begins, for this reason. What's going on here? You see, just like to use that expression, for this reason? No, he did what we often do. He set out to pray, and he got distracted in a very holy kind of distraction. Uh, sometimes our distractions aren't so holy, but don't we often do things, uh, say something like this, listen to me. I want to tell you something that's very critical. This past week I had a very difficult and discouraging experience which brought the importance of this subject to my mind. So listen to me. How many times did I say, listen to me? Two times. They were interrupted by a little digression. That's all Paul's doing. He's getting back to the prayer that he was going to begin, but being guided by the Holy Spirit, he gave us those wonderful verses that Pastor Mark opened up to us so clearly last Sunday morning. 
So the first for this reason in verse 1 probably reflects back on chapter 2, especially the second half of that chapter, maybe even chapter 1. And now that he's added these things in chapter 3 before we got to verse 14, maybe it refers to them as well. But the, the thing that I want you to appreciate is that as Paul thinks about the glorious truths of the gospel and the wonderful theology of God's revealed will in the scriptures, it sends him to his knees. It causes him to feel the need to pray. And that's something that all of us should feel when we read the scriptures, when we come to understand truth. It should send us to our knees. So there's two things to see very briefly. One, Paul's posture. What was his posture? He says, for this reason I bow my knees. Now, that is more interesting than you would expect because the truth is Jewish people didn't normally kneel when they prayed. They normally stood up. But there were those exceptional cases like when Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple, like when Stephen was preparing to die as he was about to be stoned, like the Apostle Paul when he was saying goodbye to his dear friends from Ephesus, like our Lord Jesus in the Garden of, Eden, or Garden of Gethsemane. There are times when the physical posture just seems to be a natural expression of profound humility and desperation. And so in this case, when the apostle says, for this reason I bow my knees, we should assume that he is deeply moved about something. He's animated about something. He's anxious about something. He's burdened about something. He's earnest about something. And indeed he is, and we're going to be looking at it. And the only other thing I'll point out is that um, he tells us that we get our name from whom all the families of the earth are named, from God the Father. We are the children of God. God is our Father. We belong to the family of God. The concept of fatherhood comes from God. It's not like Freud said, we have this desperate need for some loving figure over us to care for us, so we invented the concept of fatherhood. No, the concept of fatherhood started in heaven. God the Father is in a unique sense the Father of His Son and the Father of all who trust in His Son. So that's who He's praying to and that's the posture and the attitude with which He prays. Just this comment before we go to the prayer. Dear brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully. Our prayers are a true thermometer of our souls. Our prayers are a true thermometer, or if you prefer, barometer of our souls. We always pray for what we most want. What we pray for reveals what we most desire. And, by the way, what we don't pray for indicates what we care very little about. So, 
how often we pray, how earnestly we pray, how humbly we pray, can and is very, very revealing. If I had a transcript of your prayer life for this past week, or you had a transcript of my prayer life in this past week, we would know a whole lot about one another and what's really, really important to us. What do your prayers in this past week reveal about your desires? And the same thing can be said about this church as a whole. Not just is it a a barometer on each of us individually, Our corporate praying, or lack thereof, is also a very true and faithful thermometer of the health of this church. And that's why we continue to encourage this congregation to become more burdened and desirous of praying corporately. There was a time when we required our members to be in attendance on the Wednesday evening service. And some would argue that that should still be a requirement. But without settling that issue, I do want to say this. Not requiring it does reveal to us who really does want to pray. And some people who wish the requirement were still there aren't coming to the prayer meeting. I think that says something about an area in which we need to grow as a church. And so your pastors are lovingly urging you to join your brothers and sisters on Wednesday evenings. We don't just pray for missions. We don't just pray for the church family. We also pray for the ministries of this church and other churches. And we dearly would love to see this church become a more prayerful church. Okay, that's all. Now, let's look at the prayer. And I want to make um, this comment. There are some interpretive challenges in the prayer itself. And the biggest challenge actually is to figure out how many prayer requests there are. And probably the second biggest challenge is to figure out what does Paul really mean by that. Commentators differ. Are there four requests? Are there five requests? Are there even six requests? Those who see four see it like this. Let's just notice it says in verse 15, and that's where the prayer actually begins, I bow my knees before the Father that... The implication is to pray that according to the riches of His glory. And I have to make a comment on this right now because it's not in my notes and I realized as we were preparing for worship, it would be a shame if, if I didn't say something about this. So it's a little premature, but I'm going to say it anyway. What he's about to tell us that he's praying for and asking God to do for us He's asking God to do for us according to the riches of His glory. Now, I'm going to make a, a small nuance and say to you, it doesn't say 
that he's praying that God will bless us in those ways out of his riches, but according to his riches. What's the big deal? Well, if I was filthy rich and you were very poor and I was a multi-multi-millionaire and you were desperate and I wrote out a check for you and said, you know, I just really, really want to help you. I want to put you on a new footing. And I wrote out a check for $1,000 to you. You could say, Pastor Ted ministered to me out of his riches. But if I say, you know what, I'm going to buy you a house, I'm going to get you a car, I'm going to take care of your insurance, I'm going to be sure that you have a monthly income, I want you to work, but I'm going to set you up for life. And it would be tens of thousands of dollars over a period of time. You would hopefully say, he blessed me according to the riches of his glory. So some of these things that Paul's praying for the church in Ephesus and that your pastors are praying for you, and what I want to stress in this sermon, that you ought to be praying for yourself. There's nothing uniquely apostolic about this. When you see what Paul prayed for the Ephesians, you say, yes, that's what I need to be praying for myself. Okay? When you see that you are asking for things that are impossible in some sense, Because one of the paradoxes of our passage says, I'm praying that you will be enabled to comprehend what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the length and to know the riches of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Paul, wait a minute. You want me to know what I can't really know. Is that what you just said? You want me to know what surpasses knowledge. And Paul would say, yes, I do. Because what I mean by that is you will never exhaust the knowledge, not on this earth, nor throughout the eons of eternity, but you can grow in this knowledge. You can increase in this knowledge. You need to increase in this knowledge. So says Paul, I'm giving you some things to think about and know this, that I'm praying these things for you. You ought to be praying these things for yourself, and they're impossible in one sense. But here's the deal. I'm asking God to do this according to the riches of His glory. And I'll go ahead and sneak this in here because I suspect I'm not going to have time at the end of the sermon. When we come to the doxology, it's if Paul says... uh, I'm going to do two things. First, I'm going to literally render praise and honor to God. That's what doxologies do. But listen to my words carefully. I think I can hear Paul saying, because these words in this effort of mine to ascribe glory to God are going to give you the encouragement to believe that what I'm praying for you and what you may be praying for yourself can really become a reality. What do you mean? Because look, it says, now to him who is able... To him who is able, able what? Able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Some translations say imagine. The NIV says he can do immeasurably more. Immeasurably more. So if God can do it, even though it seems impossible, and in one sense it is, in another sense it isn't, we need to pray for these things. Because they can and will become a reality in our lives. 
So, back to the question, how many petitions are there? Some would see four. The first one is that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. I'm going to talk about that briefly. The second one would be so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The third one would be that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I'm praying that you will comprehend. I'm praying that you will know. I'm praying that you will achieve a cognizance, an understanding of the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ and His love, in particular His love, but I'm also praying that you will know it and perhaps know there implies something deeper than just cognizance. It's, it's an experiential, it's an inward, it's somewhat of a mystical, it's somewhat of a subjective knowledge, but it's real. And this is what I'm praying. So you see how you could make both of those two different requests and yet I think they're really joined by the Apostle. So, that's, that's the third request. And the fourth request is at the very end, according to those who see four, that you may be filled with the fullness of God's love. Now, I hope just reading that through and showing you how you could come up with four, you also see how you could come up with five or six. And then, then it becomes, is this really a request or is this an extension of the request, an explanation of the request? Is this the fruit of the request? And so forth. So I don't think we have to figure all of that out to get benefit from this wonderful, wonderful, amazing prayer. And by the way, one commentator by the name of Robinson said, this is the single boldest prayer request found anywhere in the Bible. You say, how can that be? Some people prayed for the raising of the dead. There, there are amazing prayer requests. Elijah asked for fire to fall out of heaven and to consume something that was soaking wet. Oh, those are nothing. They're nothing. I was thinking of our dear sister Joy Malone, and there are others of you who have similar struggles and maybe not quite so serious, and her lung condition. We're praying for a miracle. I hope you're still praying for that that God will completely heal her. We've had some encouragements along the way. But if, if God says, I'll give you two requests, choose the one that you think is the greatest. Pray for her complete and perfect healing, or if you want, pray that God will strengthen her with power through faith in her inner person, and that He will enable Christ to dwell in her heart by faith. And if you want to add to that, says God, you can pray that being rooted and grounded in love, she might be given special grace from God to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. You can you can pray that too, says God to us in this little imaginary dialogue. And you, can be, and you can pray that your sister 
may be filled with the fullness of God. So what do you want? You want to pray for that one or you want to pray for her healing? I'm glad it's not an either or. But dear people, do you see why being strengthened with power in the inner man, having Christ to dwell more richly, more intimately, more fully. See, there's, there's sort of a dilemma. So why would he pray this for those Christians? They already had Christ in their heart, didn't they? They already had faith. They already had some power in the inner person, didn't they? Weren't they born again? Yes. But they didn't begin like we haven't begun, to have nearly that power in the inner person that intensity and richness of the indwelling of Christ in our hearts, that comprehension and that knowledge of the love of Christ which surpasses understanding. None of us have the degree of it. So that's why Robinson said this is the single most bold prayer request because it's asking for the impossible and yet it's offering all of the confidence that it will, by degree, be answered. And so, what a prayer. I was telling Dave Owens, he just whispered to me, he said, I'm praying for you as you do. He said, that's an amazing passage. He's, been, he's read it. He's been thinking it through. I hope you do that with the passages that you know we're going to be dealing with. And I said to Dave, I listened to a pastor friend of mine this week on this subject. He preached it in 2003, by the way, Jonathan. Fifteen years ago, Brian Borgman, who pastors in Nevada, preached on this text. And in the morning, he preached on part of it. In the evening at the Lord's Supper, he preached on the other part. And you know what he said to his people? He said, brothers and sisters, I can assure you. He said, I was frustrated this morning. I knew, what he, I knew why he was frustrated. Every true exegete and pastor knows why he was frustrated. I can't give God the glory he deserves from this text. I can't do it justice. I can't do it justice. And he said, if I preached on that text 100 times, I would not do it justice. That's how glorious it is. And I could quit right now in one sense and just pray and leave the pulpit and just beg all of you to go home and pray, A, that you'll understand what Paul was wanting, and B, that you'll get it. Okay, enough. And I, I'm, I'm, ex, I'm elaborating so that there's things that I don't have to say later that otherwise I would have. How am I going to see these prayer requests or how am I going to set them forth for you? I'm going to... I'm going to really try to make the complex simple. I really think it's helpful to focus on two words and sort of condense the requests a bit. And I think it's legitimate to do so. I'll tell you what the two words are. The words are power and love. Power and love. Power and love. You see it there in verse 16, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power. And you see the word strengthened. And then a little later, when it comes to the subject of love, would you please notice that it says in verse 18 that they may have strength to comprehend. 
So whether you want to use the word strength or power, I don't think it really makes any difference, but the key word would be power or strength. That's one. Just thinking of those as sort of one word. I'm using the word power. Divine enablement. That's the key word. Because you can't do this on your own. But that's why we have the doxology. That's why it says, Now unto him who is able to abundantly beyond all you can, all you can ask or even imagine. So there's power. And the other key word is love. Let me just demonstrate that. It says at the end of verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then I really think there probably should be a break here. This is one of the issues that commentators are divided on. I prefer to add these next few words to the beginning of verse 18 because they seem to go with it. That you being rooted and grounded in love, which is the result of Christ dwelling in our hearts, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How many times is the word love used? Love is a big deal. And when I close today, I'm going to give you a hint about what I'm going to stress at the very end. The reason why you and I sin so much is because the things that we are doing or not doing or thinking or desiring in those sins is what we love the most at that moment. You with me? You always do what you desire most to do the moment you're doing it or you wouldn't do it. So a man who has an affair... And then eventually comes back and says, Honey, I'm sorry about all that. It really didn't mean anything. I love you. She's got a brain. She's going to say, You didn't love me then, did you? Because then you loved you. And that's the way it is with all of our sin. And I'm going to submit to you that this love thing is so important, dear people, that if Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is answered in our lives as we pray for the same thing, and God gives us power in the inner being, and He enables us, He strengthens us to comprehend the height and depth and length and breadth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses understanding if we experientially get there by degrees, and you never really quite get there, you just keep trying to get there and actually making progress, here's my point, the more we fall deeply in love with the one who loves us with an, a surpassing love, the easier it's going to be to say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Paul says, say no to unrighteousness. And if you love him more than you love that sin, what do you think you're going to do? So how important is the word love? Okay, so those are the two words. I'm going to say there are three requests, and it's, I, I'm not going to be dogmatic. It's debatable. But at the end of the day, it's not going to make any difference with our takeaway. The, the requests are these. One, 
I want you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit. Don't miss that. Through His Spirit. I thought I had all the Holy Spirit was going to do for me. Come on, Paul. I've been born again by the Holy Spirit. He dwells within me. What are you saying? There's an ongoing ministry, the Holy Spirit in our lives? You're saying there's more of the Holy Spirit for me to get? Yep, that's what I'm saying. My prayer is that you will be granted from God strength and power by the Holy Spirit in the inner person. What's the inner person? That's your soul. That's your heart. That's the center of your being. So I'll just throw this question out. What would, how would your life change if you became stronger by the help of the Holy Spirit in your inner person? Would that help you with temptation? Would that help you with your Christian disciplines? And let me just add this because I think it belongs together. What would happen if Christ dwelt in your hearts more fully, more intimately, more intensely than he presently does through faith. More of Christ, more of the Holy Spirit. Inner being, heart. You see how they're so parallel? Power in the inner being, Christ dwelling in the heart. They're really two different ways of talking about the same thing. And should we be surprised that the Holy Spirit and Christ work together so closely? I'm not going to take time to take you to those passages. But they're very interesting where Jesus says things like, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and, and when I do, I will be in you. I will be in you. When Christ works in us, He works by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit works in us, it is the Spirit of Christ. And this whole passage is Trinitarian, isn't it? That's the fourth time this passage is Trinitarian. I'm not going to show you the others. The Bible's full of Trinitarian structures. Paul says, I'm praying to the Father that the Holy Spirit will strengthen you and that Christ will dwell in your hearts. The Father, the Spirit, the Son. So that's prayer request number one. Let me hurry to prayer request number two. And by the way, that does imply, doesn't it, that we're weak by nature. Otherwise, we wouldn't need someone to pray that we would be empowered in our inner man. Request number two. It is... That being rooted, notice again verse 17, toward the end, um, that you being rooted and grounded in love because of the power of the Spirit in your life, because of Christ dwelling with you, you're growing to love God more, you're growing to love your brother and sister more, you're growing to be a more and more loving person. So now here comes a prayer request number two. Being rooted and grounded in love, I'm also praying, says Paul, that you'll have strength for two things, to comprehend and to know. You see both of those? They're separated by some words. To comprehend, 
Little parentheses with all the saints. So here's another application, lest I forget. Don't try to do this stuff on your own. Comprehend with all the saints. Would you have put that in there? Or would you just, no, just you study your Bible, get good commentaries, get good books on theology, do a lot of praying, go off, be alone, be sort of like a Tibetan monk, uh, spend time in a monastery, just give your whole self over to a contemplative life of prayer and study. That's how you will, no, 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 with all of the saints. So we're doing that right now. Here are all the saints. We have a couple of we have two kinds of community in the church. We have the big community, which gathers to worship together and, and sits around the Lord's Supper and shares and still tries to maintain as much as possible a sense of family, even though it's hard to know everyone. And then we have smaller communities. But the point is, God intends us to make progress in these things via community. So the second prayer request is really about love. The two words I said were power and love. But now he's wanting to see the Christians in Ephesus to be divinely enabled, may have strength to two, for two things, to comprehend what is the breadth, length, height, depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So you see how those two things come together. We comprehend and we also hopefully come to a deep spiritual awareness, uh, intimacy with Christ and with His love. Now, what about this breadth, length, height, and depth? What's that, what's that about? That's debatable, but I think at least we can say this for sure. It's about the fullness of God. It's like, I want you to try to conceive of the breadth of God's love. I want you to try to conceive of the height of Christ's love, the depth, and so forth, those spatial dimensions. I think a quick excursion to Job chapter 11 could be helpful. Keep a marker in Ephesians 3, but just quickly notice with me in in Job chapter 11, some questions, their rhetorical questions are asked, and I think it's dealing with the same thing in principle. I think it's about verses um, 7 and following. Job eleven seven. Here's a question, congregation. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you plumb the depths of God? Anybody here able to plumb the depths of God? But does He have depths? Oh, yes. In fact, they're like the bottomless pit. There is no bottom to the depths. Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? No. It is higher than heaven. What can you do? It is deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. So I think the apostle is simply saying, I don't want you to know a little bit about God. I don't want you to comprehend a little bit about Christ and His love. I want you to pursue the height and the length and the width and the depth of it. And some have gone so far as to say things like, well, the breadth of God's love certainly manifests itself in His desire for all of the nations of the earth. And the length of God's love has reference perhaps to the eternality of His love and the permanence of His love throughout history and the 
height of it, it lifts us to heaven and to holy things. And the depth of it, it goes down to retrieve the, the worst and the lowest sinner of all mankind. Maybe. Certainly it includes that. It can't probably mean only that. But you see what Paul wants. He says, I don't want you to get a little idea of the love of Christ. I want you to discover and experience and comprehend the breadth and the length and the width and the height of Christ. Will you ever get to the outer limits of those dimensions? No. Will you make progress in trying to? Yes! That's why this prayer is in this chapter. How foolish for Paul to say, I'm going to pray about something that cannot possibly happen to any degree. It's not what he's saying. So those are some possibilities, and I've already talked about the, the paradox. I just want to say to you, there's an already and a not yet, even in these things in our lives, isn't there? We use those expressions. The kingdom is here, but not in its final stage. I have God in my inner being, but not in the way I can and someday will. There's a not yet. And some of it doesn't have to wait for the second coming. Okay? It, it waits for you to go home and get on your knees and pray to the Father for power in the inner person. How do you conceive of the love of Christ adequately? <laughs> you don't. But you should try. You should try. When we think about the love of our Savior, it should just overwhelm us, and that would be a good assignment for this afternoon and for the rest of your life. Just keep thinking about how much does Christ love me? And in what ways does He love me? Spurgeon said this about the love of Christ. He said, The love of Christ in its sweetness, its fullness, its greatness, its faithfulness, passes all human comprehension. Where shall language be found that shall describe his matchless, his unparalleled love to the children of men? It is so vast, it is so boundless, that as a swallow, just think of a little little bird, a swallow, but skims the waters of the ocean and yet does not dive into its depths, so all descriptive words merely touch the surface while the depths immeasurable lie beneath. That's, that's what it's like for us to try to comprehend the love of Christ. Samuel Rutherford wrote these words while suffering in prison and yet while prospering in prison. That's an interesting thing. His soul was thriving in prison. He says, love, love, I mean Christ's love, is the hottest coal that ever I felt. Oh, but the smoke of it is hot. Cast all of the salty sea on this hot coal and it will still flame. Hell cannot quench it. Many waters cannot quench it. Boy, isn't that what we need? A comprehension 
and an experiential knowledge of that kind of love in our lives. I love the songs that Pastor Mark chose. And I hope you see that there's always, always a connection between the song sung and the sermon preached. Always. It's not haphazard. And we sang, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love leading onward, leading homeward to your glorious rest above. So, what's the third and final request? The third one is, right at the very end, it's that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. One of the commentators, whom we quote quite often, John Stott, says he likes to think of these as stair steps in a staircase that just keep ascending higher and higher to a more beautiful place. Another commentator said it's like going out of one room which is beautiful and luxurious, and there's an opening into another room that's even more beautiful and more glorious. And then you go out into another room that's even more and more beautiful. And there's, there's wisdom in that perception. And so Paul is saying, here's, here's the ultimate. If you are strengthened in the inner man, if Christ dwells in your hearts, if you are enabled to... Con- conceive if at all possible and to know the love of Christ for you, here's what's going to happen. You are going to experience the fullness, the filling of the fullness of God. Those last, what, seven or eight words. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. Are you already filled as full as you can be? I thought I had all I was going to have of the Holy Spirit. I thought I was I have all, all that I could ever have of the fullness of God. No, you haven't even come close to it. Well, I know I'm going to get all that when Jesus comes back. No, says Paul. Yes, you're going to get another installment of it. But guess what? You're not even going to give it all then. You will never fully grasp and experience the fullness of God because He is infinite. Not even in eternity. But the shame of it is, dear people, we're not making much progress now. We're not growing much now. And that's why Paul prays for these people. They were weak Christians just like we were, are. And so we need to pray for these things. So what is the fullness of God? It's, that's hard to grasp. Again, it's kind of like the length and the breadth and depth. Can you really be filled with the fullness of God? Yes, in this sense. One man illustrated it this week. He said, if I go to the ocean and I stand at the beach of either the Atlantic or the Pacific with a little jar, a little mason jar with a handle, and I, let it, I just let it down and I let the waves come in, fill that thing, and it's full to the brim, my little jar has been filled with the fullness, the fullness of the ocean. We will never, ever completely comprehend the glory of our God because He is infinite. He is boundless. He is unfathomable. He is incomprehensible. One old Puritan put it like this, we best comprehend God when we comprehend Him to be in 
incomprehensible. So, but this is what God wants for us. This is what Paul wants for us. This is what God wants for us. This is a holy argument, isn't it? Is there anybody here who is so mentally deficient to say that I doubt if God really wants me to have more strength in the inner being and to be more dwelt in my heart by Christ and to come to greater comprehension of the love of Christ. I really don't think he'll probably answer that prayer request. Are you kidding me? There's probably nothing God wants more to answer than that. So let's, let's pray for these things. Do you want these things for yourself? Do you pray for them? Do you pray for them? I have to confess to you that I have not prayed for these things. This passage is very convicting to me this week. Very troublesome to me because I thought, I am so unlike the Apostle Paul. But I want to. I'm going to start praying this stuff for me. I hope you'll start praying it for you. Well, I conclude then with that point that I said I would come back to. And I'm just going to read something short to you. And I'm not going to say more about that doxology. That doxology is amazing. By the way, if you want to really go deep, just read Lloyd-Jones' sermons on chapter 3. He only preached 24 sermons on chapter 3. Read two or three of his amazing sermons on the doxology. How God's purpose is to show his glory in the church and in Christ forever. So I haven't even scratched the surface of the doxology. Be back to this issue of the power of love. Okay, the power of love. I'd like you to just kind of remember that statement, the power of love. What do you mean, the power of love? I mean that if we have more awareness of the love of Christ for us and love him back because he first loved us, we will have more power in our lives to deal with sin and here's the illustration of the president of uh, Reformed uh, Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. He says, an older man, uh, it won't work. The words came from an older man who confronted me after sermon. I had preached on overcoming temptation. I had given what I consider to be helpful and biblical counsel on the need to recognize sin, turn from it, practice new habits, avoid old ones and become accountable to other fellow believers. The old man faced me directly and said, I work with young men who travel on business. They are, um, they are bombarded with sexual temptation of all sorts. And they think that simply by sheer grit they will, they will have power to resist temptation. I have to tell them that they must pray that God will change the nature of their hearts or they won't be able to resist. People do precisely what they love. And until they have a greater love for the things of God than the things of this world, they will not be able to stop. At that time, says President Chapel, I thought that the man simply had not listened to me closely or that he was just a kook. I've never seen him again. But in the years since he spoke to me, I have thought much 
more about what this man said. And I have more than once wondered if he were not a man, but an angel sent to help me think and to preach more clearly about the power of the gospel. Could it really be that simple? Is our power in our passions? Passions control the insane and the romantic, but could this be true of the rest of us? Do we simply do what we most love to do and thus the power for spiritual change is found in the affections of the heart? If that is so, then the love that motivates us is actually the power that drives us. You hear that? The love that motivates us is the power that drives us. Why we do what we do is also how we do what we do. If why I serve God is also how I serve God, then greater love always precedes greater power. In fact, since we will only and always do what we love the most, then greater love means I will have greater power. Folks, this passage has not been well dealt with by me. But if you will pray over it and meditate on it and ask the Holy Spirit who inspired it to help you understand it and to help you pray it and to help you experience it, you'll only be thankful that you heard a sermon that directed you to this prayer of the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that we desperately, desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit in our inner person. We desperately need, Lord Jesus, for you to come and dwell, not to spend a night lodging like we do when we go to a motel, but to dwell in our hearts. And we pray that, God, you will strengthen us to comprehend and to know the love of Christ in its height and depth and breadth and width. And we pray that we will progressively experience a filling of the fullness of yourself. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, church, let's stand together briefly and sing verse 3 in the chorus of Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus.